The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on MindBodySpirit.fm, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable, and let's dig in. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me again today. Today's conversation is with my friend Dimitri Reyes, who is a poet and a poetry teacher. Um, and we're going to talk about our relationship to poetry, which stay tuned. I know some of you probably don't have any kind of relationship to poetry, and that's okay. I'm hopeful that maybe you will rethink that after this conversation. Um, as a both as a writer and as a reader, I used to find poetry really intimidating. Um, and I have kind of changed my tune on that. So maybe you will too when you're when we're done with this conversation. So without any further ado, let me introduce my friend Dimitri. Dimitri Reyes is a Boricua multidisciplinary artist, content creator, and educator from Newark, New Jersey. His most recent book, Papi Pichon, from Get Fresh Books, was a finalist for the Omnidon Chapbook Contest and the Andres Montoya Poetry Prize. His other books include Every First and Fifteenth, which was the winner of the Digging Press 2020 Chapbook Award, and the poetry journal Shadow Work for Poets, which um, if you are someone who even just dabbles in poetry or plays or wants some poetry writing prompts, I highly recommend that book. Dimitri's work has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net, and you can find more of his writing in Poem a Day, Vinyl, Quelli, and Ascentos. In 2023, he was part of the inaugural poetry cohort for the Poets and Writers Get the Work Out Publishing Incubator. I'm sorry, Get the Word Out <laughs> Publishing Incubator. Dimitri is also the marketing and communications director at Cavan Carey Press, and that's how I know him. They published my memoir, A Truth Has a Different Shape, in 2020. But Cavan Carey also publishes poetry, really, really beautiful poetry. So check them out. Let's dive in. Let's start talking. All right. I'm so excited that we're having this opportunity to talk. Um, and I just can't wait to hear, uh, I mean, you and I've, you know, interacted on different levels over the last several years, but I'm just really excited to have this conversation with you because I am so grateful for your words, both spoken word and your poetry, um, for your advocacy for other writers, um, for your ability to teach writing and you know what that looks like i'm i'm just super excited to kind of glean some wisdom from you today <laughs> thanks so much carrie it's, it's the blessing to be here really and i could say the same thing to you with everything that you do for your your communities and what what you write for and who you write for and who you also teach and mentor it's really a beautiful thing to see so um you know i, I think in life just people synergies and energies mm. end up combining and creates more synergy. And hopefully we get to pass this on to other people during our conversation today. 
Yeah, I hope so. I think there are going to be some people who are super excited about this conversation. So my, I'm just going to jump right in with a question about, because this is the show is it's relatable, right? It's relationship to all things. And I am just curious about your relationship to poetry. Like, when did that start? Has it changed? You know, what did it look like? What does it look like now? Um, when did you first discover poetry? All of that kind of just a quick history of that. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's so cool too because I think uh, when you talk to writers and you think of origins of writers, um, and thank you so much for opening with that question. Um, you could cut that question in a bunch of different ways, right? Like, uh, yes. I've I've told people sometimes that I didn't touch poetry uh, outside of like Poe and William Shakespeare that you get fed in like high school until I was in college, and I was looking for an extra credit course. But uh, knowing poets later on, I actually realized that we had this really old Robert Browning book, like hardcover from a, it was binded really nice, probably like from the turn of the 20th century. Um, and it was actually holding up a coffee table in my childhood home. And I didn't <laughs> know until we moved it, that we were just using it as a utility thing for a second. And then when I looked it up, I was like, oh my God, this is a Robert Browning book. So it's, it's amazing to see how you brush up against things and you don't know they're going to come into your life yeah. until later on. Um, but poetry came into my life seriously, uh, near my senior year of undergraduate, uh, at Rutgers Nork. I, man, Carrie, I jumped so many majors. I was a first time college student and I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, mm. but in grade school and middle school and high school, everyone told me I was like a really good writer, right? Like, um, I got like a perfect score on a state test, which was really hard, like an wow. essay. I was like, uh, I don't know, like I'm just, you know, giving the template you gave me and just putting a little mm -hmm. bit of flavor in it. Um, so I did, I wanted to avoid that, especially because since I was entering college for the first time, you know, you, you hear that, that authors aren't really going to make that much money. There's not that much money in an English degree, or you're going to yeah. be having ramen noodles and pop tarts for the rest of your days, you know? <laughs> so I, I kind of avoided an English major for a long time. I went into the sciences and I almost flunked out of Rutgers university. Mm. Then I was in academic probation. I started doing music for a while. I went through two semesters of music and then I couldn't read music and the jig was up. So I had oh. to switch that. Then I went into history. I went into anthropology. And then by this time I had about 80 credits and my major <laughs> was still undeclared and I didn't know what to do. And I finally just went to the Dean of the English department and I said, how many credits would I need to take to graduate? And they were like, you could still graduate on time and still get financial aid because that was the big issue for mm. me. I was on a full ride because of financial aid. You'd yeah. be able to graduate on time if you were able to take six to seven classes a semester. And I did it. And if anyone wow. has ever taken six or seven classes a semester <laughs> while holding part-time jobs, it's damn near impossible. But yeah, I'm assuming was, you didn't sleep. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I found where there's a will, there's a way, Carrie. I was able to get some sleep. Not as much as I get these days, but I was still trying to sleep because I knew how important it was. I still had to wake up to work the next day and then go to school at night. But, you know, by something, something in the air, the muses maybe got me through. Uh, my, my, my wife, which is my girlfriend at the time, was a really big support system for me. I was able to graduate uh, with my undergrad and I was able to get that English degree. But while I was taking one of my final classes, I was actually in a comics class. And this poet, really great poet, uh, he's now in the Midwest, Michael Van Kalberg, um, he was teaching this comics class. And I, in some essay, I said I was a budding poet. And then in red ink on the top, he scrawled, see me after class. And I actually thought I messed up on my MLA format <laughs> or something. Yeah. And he was like, 
said you were a budding poet. What does that mean? Um, so lo and behold, he actually went through that same MFA program that I ended up getting accepted to and he was teaching on campus. He mm -hmm. helped structure my application. He helped me get my recommendations and he kind of told me the what's what of the MFA program. And he helped me get in along with some other people along the way. So that's actually when I professionally started writing. But before mm -hmm. that, Carrie, I never even picked it up besides just the class time. So yeah. It left me in this really interesting space of needing to learn something. Um, and you mentioned that I was a teacher. I actually started teaching online. And, and I think teaching poetry and the craft of literature is a big proponent for me because I needed so much help in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so even now through the poetry I produce and the people I help, I'm always thinking how I could get that reader or that student to the next point when they're writing themselves or when they're discovering something themselves. So um, yeah. that was a good place to start. And I, I feel like I'm already yeah. that person that goes that goes a bit tangential <laughs> in these things. And I'm sorry. Carrie. It's all good. Do not apologize. No, I love it because what happens when people get sort of off on a tangent is that the, my brain starts firing and I start, you know, thinking about different questions. And um, that is, so the, the last, I do want to circle back around to, to some of the things you said earlier, but the, but the most recent thing, when you were talking about teaching, um, you have a book called Shadow Work for Poets, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And um, I love it because I am someone who, gives folks writing prompts as well. And I also love teaching. Um, but not all creatives enjoy teaching, right? And so I'm curious, what is it for you that your craft offers to the teaching? And then how does the teaching inform your craft? Mm, okay. So that, that's a beautiful question. And thank you for doing such research. Um, I guess teaching and forming the craft, um, I started talking about that a little bit. Um, I really want, see, I, I think you got to think of the identity politics first. I think, um, you know, a, a lot of writers contemporarily that are writing now, and even writers from the past, even if it's a subconscious, they're writing into some sort of identity, right? And people identify with, with such identity. Um, that is, uh, that, that's what makes, literature great that there's a piece of identity for everyone depending on what they feel like picking up there's something out there for everyone yeah. but there is also an argument that it could be limiting because you bar out everyone else that isn't in, in your um, identity politics or your identity identifiers mm -hmm. um, that could really dig into that work. So being a brown, cisgendered, Latin male on the East Coast that is actually third generation American, that means two of my generations past have actually been from the island where we originally were from in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. um, that creates a very specific identity, like character makeup, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I go into writing, I try to make sure I could do things that are going to be for the culture, for the people, that they're going to be able to understand and vibe and be able to communicate right. with me. But I also want to leave enough uh, breadcrumbs there so that there's room for um, there's room for education. You know, there, there's room where folks from outside those demographics can also see us in those same spaces and see our similarities and differences. Yeah. Um, and what what I did with Papi Pichong specifically as a book, so people could could vibe with that and still uh, have a re-education of sorts. In the back of the book, I have a notes section and I have a glossary for folks that aren't attuned 
attuned to the terminology and the certain cultural events that are happening within the book. So okay. I guess that's how the teaching goes into the craft. Now, how the craft um, goes into the teaching, right? Um, or vice versa. I just confused myself at this point. Um, <laughs> I do think poetry is very performative. Um, and I think I was a good teacher before I was a good poet. Mm -hmm. um, so now that there's an inversion of that and professionally I'm seen as this author or someone that can go into a classroom, whether it's high schoolers, you know, uh, seniors, college students, and help them with craft and help them learn how to talk about poetry, I've seen that they are both sides of the same coin, right? Um, okay. That you're teaching from the work, you're also creating that work to help teach others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, I mean, I think, and I like that you talked about the the identity politics piece because um, I was a person who, I mean, I was very much the same as you where, you know, I only encountered poetry as an assignment in a class in school, right? Or, and and I guess that's actually not true. I did that thing, which I think so many um teenagers of my era did which was when we were in high school we wrote that horrible really really awful angsty 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 poetry <laughs> like you know which i hope somehow has been destroyed and nobody ever finds because i can't imagine like but i never um i i always found poetry really intimidating and I think um, there were a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one was that there seemed to be so many rules, which I think I'm really grateful that um, there were all these rules that we were taught about writing that I think are nonsense and don't really apply anymore. And I absolutely love that. But back then, it felt like there were all these rules to poetry. But I also found it intimidating because I think one of the things about poetry is that it makes you slow down and it makes you interact with it. I mean, I was one of those people who could pick up like a Danielle Steele novel and read it in two days, right? And just like whoosh, so much fluff. But poetry really made me slow down and it made me interact with it more. And what I am learning about that is that that was intimidating to me as a white person. I think that that's a function of white supremacy and an artifact of capitalism. There's this notion of like, I want things to be fast and clear and easily digestible. Mm. And and so there was something, even though most of the poetry that I encountered in high school was written by white folks, um, it it there still was this sense for me of like, could you, I'd like to be the baby bird. Could you pre-digest that and give it to me? Because I don't want to have to sit and think about this and and poetry often made me feel some kind of way that was a little uncomfortable <laughs> and so um again as a white person i was like oh no 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 i don't need to feel that way i'm i will be pushing that away and going back to the danielle Steele novel right but i'm curious so i'm curious if that what that kind of evokes for you and as someone who's grown up with very different life experiences than me um did you encounter poetry in a very different way than prose or what, like when you did bump up against poetry, did it feel intimidating? Did it feel like something you had to really work to decipher? Yeah. Yeah. 
that's really that's that's a loaded question carrie and thank you for that one um yeah it's tough i i think when you're a person of color if we can go there it's it's kind of like a double-edged sword when you're when you're starting to learn um american literature and literature of the eurocentric tradition right because i think there is a certain kind of hustling you have to do to understand the other side of the coin that you mm -hmm. might not be a part of yeah right um so yeah. When you first start writing, uh, you might, or, or you you're first interested in that kind of writing, it might not feel like it's for you, right? That because you haven't been introduced to to authors or spaces that are kind of writing in that tradition that that you find home in, or you could find your own ancestry and you could find your parents in, you know, mm. your neighbors in. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a really interesting thing there. I, I, I do think that there's something about hustle culture and the working class with people of color, particularly, um, that could also uh, turn them on and rev their engines to want to discover literature, right? Do some of that mm. brain work and hustle a little more. Um, and then I think when you finally find that open pass where you read like uh, a Nicole Seeley or a Sonia Sanchez or a Willie Perdomo or a Douglas Carney, that boom, that's it. Right. The mm. Terrence Hayes just presented himself to me. Right. Um, and, and then I think that's where the real work starts starts. Um, I'm kind of in an interesting space because I was a social justice worker and a grassroots organizer uh, in my past lifetime. I would still say I could do that more on the administrative side now. But when I was an educator and I and I taught in uh, middle school, uh, I was still doing a lot of that social work. And I was very much like, you know, uh, topple the patriarchy, topple white supremacy you know mm -hmm. go in guns a blazing and just don't hold back and i think that there is a place for that and now that i'm in in the arts administration and the publishing space i do think that there's still room for that but now that i am writing myself and, and i'm putting these books out i want there to be that medium of an exchange of information mm -hmm. so people on the opposite side can hear me, but yeah. they can also understand that trauma and frustration from where I'm coming from. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think for a little while, we've been given the space to, to be angry and aggressive. And I still think we need to do those things, but we also can't peg ourselves because what I did end up finding out um, when I do talk to folks that are in publishing, uh, specifically marketing and advertising folks or people that want to run certain interviews, they've asked me questions like, yeah, but where is the trauma? Where's the drama in this? Where is that emotional element coming from? But if I'm coming with an emotional element of joy or celebration or humor, that's yeah. not what they're looking for. Yeah. So I think we have a skewed vision of what mm -hmm. we are expecting uh, for people that are of different racial categories to work for. Yep. in our poetry and yep. i'm trying to i'm doing a little bit of an inversion where I'm, I'm having some of that in there but there are poems in here of celebration of happiness of comedy and i'm trying to bridge that gap between multiple audiences right now because i think there is yeah. a place yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it's a lot of, you know, what like Adrienne Marie Brown talks about in her book, Pleasure Activism, right? It's like we are, as people of color, allowed to feel joy. We are allowed to celebrate. We are allowed to, like, that's part of being a full human being, right? Is holding all of those things together. Yeah. So um, thank you. And I think this is probably the perfect time to ask you to read um, a poem from okay. your latest book i would because i think that I, this is the i think it's the first poem in poppy pichon it's made in america and it's 
fabulous and I love it. And it just really struck me. And I think it speaks to the, all of that kind of like identity, but also having a slightly different perspective. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And, you know, it's an interesting poem, uh, Made in America, to read first, um, because there is a lot of learning, or, or unlearning, rather, relearning that you have to do if you are in certain I- I identifying categories where you are playing into that Americanness and that Eurocentrism that, that's just given to you. Yeah. So, um, and you start seeing it as you get older in weird ways, how you had misconceptions of, of different cultures, and even mm-hmm. cultures that you belong to. So mm. this poem specifically, my grandfather, who, who has a, a pretty uh, important role uh, in this book, he has a whole second section um, that was the lead up to his passing. He did pass away mm. in Puerto Rico. He, he was here for about 30 or 40 years and then he went back uh, mm. after he retired. Um, he was in Maya West, which is ground zero for the, the birth of music like Bomba. Uh, which mm. is a, a cultural uh, music specifically for the island, and it's very political. Um, so there's people playing, you know, in in the community all the time. And I was like, and I'm a percussionist, so I told my grandfather, "Oh man, like I, I would love, like you know, um, a hand drum for you to send back, specifically a planeta or some maracas, right?" Um, and mm-hmm. I'm expecting to get this this authentic, like wooden carved thing out of like a coffee tree. Um, but he sends me back something that's just resting right there it's actually mm. out from lp that i could have gotten <laughs> on amazon and i was like poppy what is this and you know he's like well you know i went to the store and i got you this it was the one that was in the music <laughs> store. i mean but he's like it's from puerto rico so uh, th- there was a really interesting <laughs> conversation having there so this is kind of like about the commodification of, of a land and and how capitalism plays into what culture is so this is made in america I thought they would be of real madera, the kinds with splinters, that this item from its birthplace across an ocean would come with an authentic flag carved into the handle as if sliced from a tree, each instrument cured by the scent of café con leche. I look at this USPS box as if to ask why you aren't wrapped in enough tape to waterproof yourself because you've traveled oceans like a message in a bottle. No certificate of authenticity. Instead, this maraca was made by hands who pulsed to the pace of manufacturing novelty musicas, enough to afford a hibaro hat, enough for endless chicken feed to cast the way it's depicted on that one mural in that one legitimate Puerto Rican restaurant. I can only blame the Bermuda Triangle for its etched in plastic. My instrument will shake with the sound of an Anglo percussionist caricature. My American voice, a poquito, poquito, suave, suavecito, fabrication that silica gel packets can't hide beyond maracas or mouth. I will not be taken seriously during Hispanic Heritage Month, even when the pain of my flag begins to crown the crackle of heavy tongue through teeth. Ooh, okay. I have goosebumps. I, wow. I'm going to sit with that for a second. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So one of the things I have heard you do either spoken word or read your poetry before, um, 
And there, and it strikes me that there is this, um, like they're both absolutely beautiful. I very much prefer hearing your words in your voice, <laughs> right? In my head, that's like, it. it's just amazing. And so I'm curious, for, like for you, whether you're teaching or whether you're doing your own work, are there are there differences between spoken word and writing for you? And what does that look like? And how does it play out if there are? I mean, a, a couple of my students will, will hear me banging the gong about this. Um, it's it's super important for that poem to, to become a body once you're speaking it. You know, you, you don't have to do the big caricatures and the choreography and the 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 the, the singing as mm -hmm. I would do. But there are things that make our voices distinct, and I I think it is important for um, our readings, if they're not performances, to be our calling cards to, mm -hmm. to really have people have a different experience uh, hearing you read your poem, and then they have another different experience while they're reading the poem themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I try to make it akin to uh, when you go see, you, when you go to a concert and you see your favorite musician, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're going to have a slightly different version they're going to play in the audience because they're playing it like 300 out of 365 days a year. Um, so there's going to be a mix in tempo. There's going to be a mix in style. There might be a bit of an embellishment that's different. Um, yeah. I, I do think there is an importance of having that poem pop off the page. Um, what I will say, though, um, in recent time, uh, after doing, after studying the the black arts and the Eurekans pretty heavily, um, and how they kind of use space on the page or or lack thereof for space on the page, I do try to to guide my readers through the poem by having certain in jams um, that could act as punctuation to help speed mm. up or slow the poem down. But I've also uh, understood that actually one of your press mates from Cabin Carry, uh, Carrie, um, Daniel B. Summerhill mentioned that when you write the poem and you put it out, it's not yours anymore. Right. Mm, um, yeah. And I, and I think that's super important to respect that when you read it or when a colleague of yours reads it or when the person down the road reads it, they're going to get a different interpretation than what they're going to get um, when I read it myself. And that also might change every time, depending on how I'm feeling. So you yeah. just got to got to you got to kind of uh, throw caution to the wind in that aspect and just respect that process. Yeah, it's it's funny. I'm um, I do not consider myself a poet. Um, I definitely prefer to write prose, but I, in, in an effort to sort of push myself out of my comfort zone, I joined a group of folks who we do 30-day poetry challenges every other month. Oh and God. so it's like, you know, for the month of January, like write a poem every single day and share it with the group whether it's garbage or not. Right. And then February took the month off and then we did it again in March. And then we, and it's wild because you'll read somebody's poem and where it's a Facebook group, it's a closed Facebook group, right? So we can comment on each other's stuff and someone will like, you'll comment on it and think, Oh my God, I love the way you use the words and you did this thing and you did this other. And they'll be like, Oh, I didn't even realize I was doing that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah those happy mistakes i love them yeah yeah so it's it's true i love that that like once and you know and i felt that way when like when my memoir came out right it was like 
it doesn't belong to me anymore, right? It does. I get feedback from people who've read it, who will pick something out of there that was incredibly meaningful for them. And it's like, cool, that's why I put it out there, right? Is because I knew that some of it was going to be relatable for different people in different situations. And I think we don't, we have to let go of the idea that we get to control how it's going to land for other people. Um, But so when you're working on a piece, do you speak it as you're like, when you're playing with it, do you read it out loud just to hear kind of what the rhythm and the cadence is and see what it sounds like? Um, I do. Uh, usually like a couple of lines will come to me and the, and the couple of lines that come to me might be a bit more musical. And then I try to follow that until it starts breaking down and then I go a different direction. Um, in my writing mode, it usually starts out as just a prose block where I'm just getting the idea down and the music is embedded in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then the fun part is after the draft is completed to try to find the music and accentuate it by doing the line breaks and switching words around, um, et cetera. Um, but that's a good question as if it's, if I read it and, and like kind of perform it while I'm writing. Um, and I think subconsciously I do just because I can't follow a thought for too long without having to read back and see what I read in order to see what goes next. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I, I, I think way faster than I could ever type. And I, I think I could type pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that there's a bit of kind of a call and response that's happening while I'm going through it. Mm-hmm. But I think we all kind of have that while we're going through something. And I think it's important for us to pay attention to that because uh, during drafts, what I've seen working with with students, we're, we're really talking to ourselves when, yeah. when we're writing poems down or we're writing a story. And that that static self that was there like six sentences ago is an older version of us because we just got some new information put in. So mm. we're only kind of talking to an older version of ourselves. Um, and it's interesting because I got asked uh, in another interview, uh, how does it feel to read something that's pretty old? Because I've been working on this manuscript since 2016. Mm. Um, and there's like two schools of thought. One school of thought is like, once that book is out, it's for everyone else. You know, it's no longer my own. And I feel distant because I'm writing the next thing. Yeah. But you know, I'm I'm from that school where every time you go to a poem, every time you go into a poem, you're stepping into that body again, and you get to kind of relive that world and that space for that one, two, or three pages. Um, so yeah. I always feel connected to those pieces too, whether they're done or whether I'm still writing them. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm have been um, working on the audiobook version of my memoir, and I haven't you know, I mean, I haven't read it since it came out in 2020. <laughs> I mean, I've read little pieces of it, you know, for different events, but um, it is wild. to th- and, and I just last summer finished my next manuscript. And, and so to see the difference in the person I was then and the person I am now is like, oh, wow, that's really wild, <laughs> you know, but um, it is, I, I, it's, I think we are always in relationship with those, like we have these ties to those pieces of ourselves. Right. And we learn from, we learn from that. We, um, and it's, I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to kind of seamlessly go back and forth and see like, who was I then when I was doing that? And what have I learned since then? And how have I built on that? Um, yeah, yeah. For sure. I, I think it's really scary too when you had like a strong opinion, right? And then that opinion may be how you feel now or you don't feel that way anymore, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting to kind of balance that. But I think all of it's about growth, 
you know? Um, yeah. I've come to terms with the idea that, like I said, when I write something, it's going to be static and it's going to be permanent. But I know that something I write, something that other people write, that's also going to be subject to change. Um, I always think it's how they follow up and they recover from that. Um, you know? Um, yeah. 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 It's one of the things, that's one of the things I say often to one of my other hats I wear in, out in the world is I'm a parent coach for parents of teens. And one of the things I say to parents all the time about their teenagers is, are you helping them learn or are you expecting them to know? there's a huge difference there right like if like if you're going to get really frustrated with them because they didn't figure out they didn't learn that lesson after the first time they screwed up like i i watched my parents drive a car 600,000 times before i ever got behind the wheel of a car but that doesn't mean i knew how to drive <laughs> like i still had to learn all of the things that went along with that right so i think the i think we have this sort of sense that like people should just know how to do stuff like you should just know how to be an adult or you should by the time you're in your 20s whatever opinions you have formed should just be your opinions right and it's like wait no I do get to grow I do get to keep growing and changing and um and I think that one of the things another writer was was and I were talking about was like the way that the reason that we write is to see what how we actually are thinking about the world like it's that that informs us like what is it that i actually believe right now or what is it that's actually going on in there how am i experiencing the world right now because somehow when it's trapped inside my head i think i know but i don't really know until i start writing it down Right, right. And uh, that goes back to that. Uh, the, that was the whole premise of that shadow work for poets journal that you mentioned. Um, it's also mm -hmm. important for us to really write these things down. Um, and, and, and sometimes when we're writing about those vulnerable things, they're coming out through that, that craft part of writing that we're doing. And I think that's what ended up happening in a workshop. I was like, Oh man, like, uh, we're, we're really digging deep here, but we should also be asking ourselves the question of why we're making certain moves. What made us think, um, those certain ways. And I think that goes back to, us uh relearning and and unlearning those things that we have to just experience but it's important to call those out as you mentioned yeah yeah so do you think in poetry like do you experience the world that way sometimes and what way um so like a friend of mine who is in is, is in this 30-day poetry challenge thing he's like when we're in the month where we're writing a poem every single day like i literally see poetry everywhere you know, I'll take the dog for a walk and I see that, like there's it's in everything. It's like just in my higher consciousness. Oh, yeah. I, I think with the poets, my I, I think that's why some people just look at writers and they're like, wait, so you are you saying on a Saturday morning you just sit on your porch and you choose just to scribble on a piece of paper <laughs> and yeah, yeah, you know, um, yeah. What's better than that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I do think uh, you you start exercising a different muscle when you start thinking in metaphors mm -hmm. and, and synonyms all over the place, right? You, you you just start seeing magic and and beauty and random things. Um, and I mean, I don't think there's much of a difference between us writing and and meditation because it's the practice of thought, 
right? It's, it's yeah. the practice of like uh, doing that mind dump and, and, and clearing the mind and, and asking questions that we don't usually ask ourselves in a day to day where we're communing, communicating with people and we're working and we're trying to get our chores done, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually a, a chance to, to think and be creative. And I think that's why like, you know, kids say the darnest things. Sometimes they're speaking genius because their job is just to, to think. And go right. to school at that age, right? So they don't have all this other stuff that they have to filter their identity through. Um, yeah, that's why I think uh, it was great growing up when they had to make us do like these um, what they called like those picture prompts, where you look at a picture and you had to write a story about it. Yeah, um, and and exercises like that. I still tried to incorporate things like that into my middle school teaching with the students because I, I do think that they're we're in a, a precipice of a time where it's just a lot of like produce, 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 but we're yeah. producing things in order to produce more things instead yep. of producing our own creativity, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a there's that distinct feeling I think that you get when you when something sparks, right? It's like, oh, that yep. I got it. This is, and usually for me, it's, you know, it's when I'm distracted by something else and then something sort of sneaks in. It's not when I'm trying to be creative, right? Like I'm not one of those people I know, like, like, I think it's Anne Lamott who's like, you have to, you know, put your butt in the chair for three hours every day. And I'm like, no, I will stab you in the neck with my pencil if you make me sit down and force me to write for three, three hours a day. That's not going to happen. I need to go for a walk. I need to yeah. go to the beach. I need to play with my dogs. I need to bake some bread. I need to, you know, be experiencing the world. I can't just have my butt in a chair in front of a piece of paper. I will hurt you. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense too. I, and I used to be that way. Like I, I really tried to used to, especially when I first started YouTube and I was like telling people tips and things that I was learning from my MFA, trying to be really militant about the creative writing process. But I've gotten to a point where it's like, I, you have to value joy and the journey over the creation. Yeah. So a lot of times I, I'm telling my students, I'm going through dry spells where I'm not writing and it's okay. You don't have to get gray hairs over this stuff. Yeah. When it comes, it's going to come. And there's other things to do when you're not creating, right? Like you could revise, you could look at that stack of like 200 pages that you did write when you were creating voraciously, right? Because that's the other thing too. Yeah. I feel like we fall into the system of create, create, create. And it's kind of just like work, 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 make yep. money, make money, make money to spend money, spend money, spend money. When are yep. you stopping to actually yeah. look at everything you've done? Yeah. Right? Um, so there's a lot of other stuff that actually plays into the creative process. And, and I am in my, um, hashtag enjoying life process where I'm enjoying life. And then when the, when the muse calls, I answer, but yeah. if we hear from each other for a couple months, like a good friend, we know it's still there. Yeah. 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 It took me a long time to figure that out as a writer. Um, because I started blogging like 20 years ago when blogs were pretty much brand new and I went through it. And I, and I was writing a blog post almost every single day. And then I went through this really long dry spell. And after a few years, I started to identify that there was sort of a rhythm for me. It was like summertime, I was really, really active. I would write a ton. And then in the fall, I would start to really slow down. And then in the winter, I would... the the ideas would start to spark again. And then in the spring, it would start to pick up again. And I was like, this kind of makes sense. Like, I am a biological creature. 
right? I Like we really do, as much as we try not to, we really do have rhythms and cycles. And there are, you know, creative periods and fallow periods. And that's by design. And I think this, sure, there probably are people that, you know, are writers that can just crank stuff out constantly every single day. And you know what? Knock yourself out. But that's not me. Yeah. It's not the way that it works for me. And um, and I think everybody has kind of a different sort of process for how and different kinds of things that inspire them too. For sure. So um one of the things that I get super inspired by, I'm a total word geek. And that's one of the things that I love about poetry. Um, is I think there's a little bit more freedom in that. And so I'm wondering if you, I don't even know how to pronounce the title of this poem, but I love this poem because I love the wordplay in it. It's the Papi Pichon develops. I don't know, even know yeah, how to say that it's, word. It's Abichuelology. It's a mouthful. Yeah. It's yes. just the theology of beans. That's the translation. Okay. <laughs> the theology of beans. I kind of love that. All right. Well, if you would, and it's going to be kind of just for listeners, I think it might be a little tricky. I mean, I know I sort of sprung this on you to read it because there are like blank lines and, and I'm excited to hear how you, how you navigate reading this. I think what we'll end up doing, uh, maybe in, maybe in the show notes, we'll leave a link to the poem so people could see it afterwards. Perfect. Um, I think that's definitely going to help. Um, to okay. paint a picture uh, as a poet of what this imagistically looks like, um, it's a recipe of how to create a, a pot of beans. And there is one word uh, or, or a phrase, well, no, it's it's a word. There's one word punched out of a lot of these directions. And when the one word is punched out, it has a number that refers to a footnote and the footnote has an expansion of what that word is. So what I will do, I will read through uh, the whole poem um, and I will pause when I'm going to use the, the word that I insert. And then afterwards in the footnotes, I'll read what the inserts actually do. This poem Perfect. is going to be best if you were, if you were to, this is probably one of the only poems that's better if you actually read it than <laughs> me performing it, because you need to go back and forth up and yeah, down. But you do, second, but I just, yeah. I love it because I love the wordplay in it. So Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. All right. So Papi Pichong develops Abichuelology through cooking and existing. Follow appropriate product directions for preparation. Set heat medium high and allow pot to begin heating. Eyeball two to four heaping tablespoons of sofrito into pot and allow to cook. When sizzling, add an eight ounce can of tomato sauce along with one packet of sazon con achote and adobo be generous. This will most likely turn the mixture from green to red, but don't panic. The change in color is normal. Finally, add the beans. Permit the pot to verb choose the violent kind. Eight, allow the bean sauce to thicken. Serve. So the footnotes were, word is appropriate like appropriation, but not quite. As in suitable for handcuffs on the wrists like leaf blowers on backs. As in you not knowing the differences between our black, red, brown, and pink skins. Word is allow, 
as in please grant me true opportunity in the form of your buildings, your land, my body. Word is eyeball, as in a witness, an eye for an eye, and do you see me? Four, word is can, as in can, i.e. jailed, imprisoned, incarcerated, and or detained. Word is green, as in green card, as in from sea to shining sea. Word is panic, as in don't, when you see me sharing the same space as you. Choose your own verb, the violent kind, serve. Thank you. Yeah, I when I was reading that poem, I would read it and then I would get up and I would walk around a little bit and then I would come back and I would read it again and I would kind of sit with it and then I would go do something else and then I would come back. I think I did that three or four times. Um, and I, and this is what I mean when I, or one of the things I mean when I say like, I think there's this freedom or a different way of playing with language that's available in poetry that isn't necessarily available in prose. Mm -hmm. And I love that, but, and also that's one of the things that challenges me because I tend to not be a very concise person. <laughs> I tend to be the one who's like, and I, my, so <laughs> for example, my youngest daughter, well, my kids and I all have pet names for each other in our phones, you know, as you do sometimes. And my contact name in my youngest daughter's phone is the priest. Oh. And I asked her one day and I was like, what is that about? Because I'm not religious or anything. And she said, no, it's because you cannot answer a yes or no question with yes or no. You have to give a full sermon of like, yes, in these instances. But then there are times where that's not actually true. And here's why that is. And she's like, you go through all the different combinations and permutations when all I really wanted was yep or nope. <laughs> wow. I, I can't, I can't imagine you without a deacon outfit on now. <laughs> well, I'm fairly certain I will burst into flames if I pull them on, <laughs> but, <laughs> but so concise is not um, something that I tend to, it's not a skill that I possess, but I love it when I recognize it in poetry when people can can play with those different ways of talking and you know different meanings for words and things like that and so i'm just i would love to know what that's like for you yeah um i i'm, I'm no stranger to saying that prose terrifies me because as you can see, I, I just start talking and talking and talking, you know, it gets very <laughs> verbose. Um, but that's the joking side. The more serious side to it is that there's just so many more opportunities for, and this is going to be geeky writer stuff. There's so many other times that you can make an error in prose, right? Because there's sentence structure, you, you have to kind of like go the distance. And if, if you're trying to be more expository or more detailed, right, to actually yeah. paint a fuller, more concise picture of what's actually going on. Um, I just feel like poetry is more of a practiced hand for me. Um, I, I could be as concise or as extrapolated as I want in a piece. Um, mm -hmm. I, I could leave room and, and, and margin for error, but more of like a margin 
margin for interpretation. And I think that's what people could like uh, hold a crux on in terms of poetry that there could, if any, if there's ever something missing from a poem, someone could just call it interpretive, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a fail safe. Yeah. Um, I just want to make sure that if I write prose, I can do it well. Um, and I've just had more practice with poems and a, a lot of my discipline aside from some of the, uh, contemporaries that I mentioned earlier, uh, I pull a lot multidisciplinary, uh, from the multidisciplinary side of things. So I work with musicians and I work with dancers and, um, I've worked mm -hmm. with visual artists before and with all of these different mediums, I've been able to converse with them in order to help build something. And sometimes that takes it into different directions with a poem that I haven't really been able to do with prose so i feel like that the poems feel a bit more lyrical also like a song mm. um and, you know in, in a song a lot of it you have to kind of imply in a song and i feel like i'm able to do that with verse as well do i have prose out not yet i'm working on some prose um and i've done some like literary criticism in the past but i think uh writing of the creative variety in prose is different than like criticism so i'm still exercising that muscle as well yeah yeah i mean i think um you know, like I said before, I think so many of the rules are just not even, I can remember getting in trouble as a kid for starting a sentence with and. Yeah. But, come on. It's a, it's a school, <laughs> it's a school of trauma that's keeping me away. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, I mean, there are so many just gorgeous examples of, you know, hybrids where there's poetry and prose all in the same manuscript where, you know, I mean, I, I think, um, and even just in poetry, right. I think there are so many people who've kind of pushed the envelope and, and are doing different kinds of things, um, from the way that I grew up learning about what, what a poem was supposed to look like, what the structure was supposed to look like, you know, I mean, like I got told by a bunch of people before, um, my memoir got published that I couldn't write a memoir and have it be organized chronologically. Like you can't write in chronological order. That's, you can't do that. You have to do flashbacks. You have to go forward. You have to, you know, whatever. You can't start at the beginning and, and at the end. And I was like, really? Because <laughs> I tried, I, I spent a year like moving things around and like physically printing all the pages out and moving things around and trying to wrap my head around like what it would look like if I did it a different way. And it gave me a stomach ache every single time because it just didn't feel right. And then thank God for Calvin Carey Press, who they were like, we like it this way. Bring it. Come on. Let's, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, thank God. But so I think there are a lot of those kinds of things that feel intimidating that are just outdated because, you know, if I think about me as a reader, I just want something that is going to inspire me. I want something that's going to light me on fire. I want something that's going to give me goosebumps, right? I don't, I'm not paying attention to the sentence structure. I'm not, right? I don't care about right, any right, of that. Right. Yeah. And that's, that makes total sense too. And I mean, you know, and everything I just said in the past couple of minutes could also be a farce because as you said, everything is interpretive, right? Like, uh, yeah. I've had a couple of people that took looks at this or wrote things about Bobby B. Chung and have said prose and poetry in the same breath. So supposedly yeah. there's prose in here somewhere, you know, <laughs> so it's, 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 it's interpretive. Yeah. You're absolutely right.
Yeah, I mean, well, I will say in that 30-day poetry challenge, I have done some very prose-like poetry because that's just how I write. And, you know, some of it's gotten some pretty good feedback. So I just figure, like, if we're if we're writing because of something that we're really jazzed about, we're passionate about, we're lit up about, that's going to come through to the reader, yeah. right? And... Um, it reminds me of my kids had this teacher when they were in elementary school who is to this day still their absolute favorite teacher on the planet. They both would say, you know, and neither one of them is in school anymore. My oldest graduated from college last year. And she, the thing that she taught them was mycology. She taught them about mushrooms. Neither one of them was particularly interested in mushrooms. They didn't care about mushrooms, except that they loved her and her passion and she was so excited like she would take them mushroom hunting she taught them how to cook mushrooms she taught them how to dissect mushrooms she taught them like everything you could possibly ever learn about which mushrooms grow where she had a dog that she trained to hunt truffles and they would like go out to like the whole class would go out i mean it was nothing like this you're not going to find this on a standardized test right you're this is not something that's going to get you into college and again it, it's not necessarily knowledge that is useful for them in their everyday lives, but it was the passion that she brought. It was this, like, she was super excited about it and knowledgeable about it and, like, wanted to share it with them. And I feel like that's it, right? That's what we're doing as writers is we're finding that thing that we're passionate about and we want to share it with people. Oh, yeah. yeah and that comes through. Yeah, I, I, I totally vibe with that. And it, it's so interesting because it's like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when we have these conversations, stuff that we try to make permanent and say and make it static now, it's going to be different. And even through this conversation, and I'm pretty sure I'll keep having this conversation of me talking about being scared of prose. It keeps coming up. That's the important thing. The important thing is to have that personality and that emotive passion kind of shine through um and you know i think that's a big mission for a lot of writers even more now than before also it's it's connecting with people that aren't just into the school of writing or into the or into writing in general right like trying to reach general public um a a big focal point of this book is trying to make it accessible for people that that are learned or book read but also for people from my community that could pick up this book still and 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 find something in it you know find those cultural references in it um for them to to see that poetry is not so scary you know prose isn't so scary yeah Uh, i think a lot of contemporary writers are kind of writing towards that now and i think it's important that we're starting to see that yeah yeah absolutely um, and also, I would say now that you've said that a couple of times that you're scared of prose, I feel like that is the universe's way of going. Yep. So that's pretty much exactly what you need to be writing. And so, <laughs> so watch out, watch this space here because uh, Dimitri's going to have some prose here. <laughs> I love it. Well, would you um, read us one more poem to just close oh. out? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll read the what what actually started this whole manuscript. Um, I'll read the poem that started this whole manuscript. Not um awesome. not in terms of where it is in the book, but what birthed the rest of this Papi Pichon uh mythology. And it was recently uh the Puerto Rican Day Parade happened recently. So there's a little bit of a glean into that too. So your everyone's feeds might have been seeing Puerto Rican flags and stuff, especially if you're on the East Coast here. So yeah. I'll let this one and this one is Papi Pichon as 
as rhetorical device. Papi Pichong flies out of my library book and no one hears him because he chirps at Spanish to English dictionary speed. Don't dismiss Papi's beautiful wings, a saber, a grindstone attached to gold-plated breasts, a picture of many beers emptied across a flag on the wingspan of a flying rat. Sing vergüenza, he fluffs its feathers and juts its pecker at an unknown roost, slurring, slurring, mira, mira, I got your stereotypical boricua right here, pointing at its pigeon butt. If this pigeon had a crack, it'd be the fault line where the carpetbaggers meet the campo. The winning lotto ticket my grandfather never scratched flutters out of that same book and Papi Pichon gobbles it up. It's been a long time since we've seen real gold and not the deceiving foil of a publisher's clearinghouse sold dream. It's been longer since the Puerto Rico was Borinquen, since coplas decimas y bombas fetishized Borinquen reinas and Creole babies. Show me royalty, Father Pigeon, before you go up in flames, before you are more burnt ash buried underneath more history where the musicians and poets sit on your pile of dust because you can still sing louder. Fly me to the antiquity that collected the dust of gold for your angels in Ponce, harvesting coca to make our heart beats beat faster than our feet stepping to the conga in Nork. Papi Pichong wants me to follow him past Oscar Lopez Rivera during the Puerto Rican Day Parade before Commonwealth and the Bronx burnings when we squawked like frogs before colorless, before gold, before our sea of tierra, our sea of earth learned to speak a Spanish. Mm. Awesome. I love it. That energy of that. It's... You can feel it. Thank you. Thanks. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for doing this today, for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Of course, Carrie. I'm so grateful for you having me here, and I'm grateful for all your lovely listeners. Thank you all for listening today, and I hope uh, I hope you are getting fed some poetry vibes. Let's go yes. out there and write, everyone. Yes, absolutely. All right. So the book comes out July 15th and we will have a link to purchase it in the show notes and we'll link to the um, the other poem that you read too. So people can see it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Peace. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, you'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical themes seem so much more doable for me, and I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone.
I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.